calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today, I'm in the extraordinary company of Michael Falk. We talk about some of the topics we often cover in this podcast, like investing and behavioral biases. But we also discuss something deeply personal. Michael's diagnosis with ALS, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. He shares how confronting death has shaped how he looks at life. And as you'll hear, Michael is funny and irreverent. He's also deeply thoughtful. Michael's a CFA charter holder and a partner at the Focus Consulting Group. He's also the author of the CFA Institute Research Foundation monograph, Let's All Learn How to Fish to sustain long-term economic growth. His latest book is Get to Work on Our Future. One of Michael's wishes is that his work will encourage people to engage in more expansive dialogues. And I hope today's episode sparks more conversations about what is important and how we can change our behavior to improve the quality of our lives. And now on with the show, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Falk. Michael Falk, welcome. Lauren, it is great to be with you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, Michael, it is actually my treat to have you on the show today. It's wonderful. I'm so excited to, uh, to sit down with you. Um, and it, we have so much to talk about that I almost don't even know where to begin. But perhaps a place to start would be to have you tell a little bit of your story in the sense that you discovered really on what your really early on what your purpose in life would be. So start us there. Uh, tell us that purpose and how that came to be. Well, for the sake of the amount of time we have today, Lauren, I think that I, well, maybe I should only start 10 years ago. No, I discovered my purpose when I was 22. Now, before you all say, oh, that's phenomenal, that's great. Now I want you to imagine knowing your purpose and not even a clue how to actually operate. When I was 22, my father lost his job. I was living at home after graduating college, and I saw the stress on him because he was 59 years old and looking for work. My mother, who had been a stay-at-home mom who raised three kids, I was the youngest of three, Lauren, she didn't understand economics. She didn't understand finance. She didn't understand this. And I saw the stress it brought into their relationship. They survived it. So there's, there's a happy ending there. But I quickly understood that people needed more perspective. They needed help. And simply put, my purpose is to help the financial lives of as many people as possible. I started in private wealth, one by one by one, or couples by couple, family, family. 
I went into institutional money management, maybe thousands or tens of thousands by tens of thousands. Now I actually do consulting for investment and wealth management firms, up another notch. And then I actually wrote books on trying to impact policy that would help people's financial life. Lauren, I can't say that I'm done, but I don't know if I can go any further. <laughs> Well, we're going to come back to that, but before we do, um, you mentioned your work at Focus Consulting, and I think that's also a, a great uh, place to sort of deepen the conversation. Uh, I know that you are thinking about a lot of things with your clients, but there's one question I believe you think every investor should be able to answer right now. What is that question? So the four most dangerous words in the investment and financial world, this time is different. I think all investors, all investment teams need to ask themselves to what extent they think this time is different. Because to the extent you are in alignment and you think that maybe things are a bit different now, well, then maybe you have to think about how you invest, how you plan differently now if things are different. And you, how do you make any decisions before you decide and align on this very point? Simple example, Lauren, upwards of three quarters of all the bonds that trade in the world are trading at negative real rates. Well, given that, we can ask the question if the historical policy portfolio of 60-40, is there a 40% hole in my portfolio today, Lauren? And if so, what do we need to do differently? So I want to go back to an article that you wrote actually for Enterprising Investor. I think it was back in 2018. And it was sort of headlined um, how to take, uh, I guess, investment teams from good to great. And I'm sure this is a topic that many teams uh, and professionals think about. Can you just walk us through kind of rather briefly what the main points were uh, in your thesis there? Happy to. I can, I can devolve every investment process down to six or seven steps based on how people want to count. Idea generation, research, buying, sizing, selling, and we hope continuous learning. Okay. Lather, rinse, repeat. And when we look at this, we know that different people on teams have different skill sets. Why are we not putting them into maybe one of those five, six, seven spaces to succeed wildly instead of across all of them. Instead of thinking about sector allocation of resources, why don't we think about skill allocation of resources? And if you were to start to measure your team's success or lack of, maybe you buy really, really well your batting average. You pick consistently stocks that go up, but you don't size them very big or you're round trip because you hold on too long and you don't sell them well. Let's get into that level of knowledge so that we can take a team and raise them up. It's all about getting better and better. Mm -hmm. So Michael, I guess you're one of the few people I know that uh, can go both sort of really broad and really deep. And when you go really deep, you go right down to that rabbit hole. Uh, and there's one rabbit hole I'd love to just explore. Again, we'll have to keep it sort of somewhat briefly, but I know it's something that you've thought about a lot and you've written about it. Um, and that is sort of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. 
And I guess the question is, how do we transform for short-term profit for shareholders to long-term uh, value creation for all stakeholders? Well, let me just say, I hope that more and more people recognize that the two are inextricably linked, right? Without getting too much into this, two real quick thoughts. I've co-authored a paper on this topic, and I hope it is going to be coming out soon for everybody to read. Number one. All right, let's get into the meat of it, right? When Milton Friedman said it was all about shareholders, you know, the motivation for his statement was that he was concerned about management essentially stealing other people's monies for their own private purposes and wishes and well thoughts. He said that's inappropriate. So the only way we can refocus management is say only shareholder. Milton has been possibly misrepresented very negatively. Now I'm not here to defend, but one of the things he said, businesses need to operate within the fair rules of the day. Well, if we say businesses should pay for the production of their goods and services, I mean, should they not pay for the productions of their goods and services? Well, if they're polluting water, air, they're hurting people's future health, that means they are expending other people's resources on behalf of their products and services. But if they should have to pay for them, then it becomes stakeholder, not purely shareholder, because it is beyond the company. But what happens is they're now just saying, taking the appropriate level of responsibility to produce what they're producing. And the only way they can do that is to take into consideration the stakeholder. It's inescapable. They are linked. So why don't we just admit? You know, the first step is always to admit. So I, I know you're very passionate about everything that you, you, know, you study and you research. And one of the words you told me that you detest is the idea of passive, but, but applied to this term passive versus active management. Uh, so tell the audience why that really sort of bothers you. Nothing is passive. <laughs> but, so let's start with this. There is a committee or an algorithm that was designed by a committee that decides what goes into an index fund. That's not passive. You, the investor, have to decide which index to invest in, how much to invest in it. It's not passive. You may rebalance ownership over time. You may sell a holding. That's not passive. The only thing that we can refer to as passive is you make one active decision at the start, what to buy, and then you pretend to be Rip Van Winkle, you go to sleep forever, and then when you wake up, maybe you're active again, but you're passive throughout. There's active somewhere in all of our decisions. And the reason I really don't like the word passive is because I think it describes something that actually doesn't exist, which means that people need to be more thoughtful about, even if it's a small bit of responsibility, what they need to do. So we'll, we'll focus now on something that does exist, and those are your two books. So your first book was Let's All Learn How to Fish. I hope I got that title right. 
and your second get to work on our future. So let's start with the first one. Some of our audience uh, might not be familiar with the first book, uh, Let's All Learn How to Fish. How did you, or what did you set out to do when you wrote that book? My goal was really to start and, in, and enable a much better dialogue. If we wanna have sustainable economic growth, we have to actually attend to and rethink our entitlement. Things like retirement or health care, or, 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 I can go on and on. We don't have enough. All right. Uh, we need to rethink. The problem is some people, these entitlements mean a great deal to personally. Maybe it's the difference of whether they can actually afford health care or they can live in retirement on something other than pet food. So we have to bring a level of empathy and criticality to these topics because if we don't rethink the design of these, they will destroy long-term economic growth. So my goal was to, was to do good research, to present quality arguments in such a way that we can engender dialogue because we all, like stakeholder versus shareholder, we are all in this together, and if we can rethink these, the future is actually really bright. So let's go on to the next book, so Get to Work. How does it build on the ideas and concepts that you laid out in the first book? Well, the first book was about ideas. The second book was maybe a little bit more about strategy, about how we might be able to get those ideas. But more to the point, Lauren, I had the distinct pleasure, I had the honor of presenting that first book all around the world to CFA societies. And during the Q&A sessions, they taught me something. And that's what's beautiful about a real dialogue. You can learn from others. They taught me that maybe, Michael, the biggest entitlement of them all is not seen as an entitlement. I won't get into the details because of time. I began to imagine the biggest entitlement of them all is actually a job, having a job. If I'm smart enough, if I'm nice enough, I'm, I'm decent enough, somebody ought to give me a job. No, everybody has the ability to do work, most everybody. We need to flip that script. We need to stop thinking about somebody giving us because we deserve it and going out and doing good work and enabling ourselves. The second book was to take on all the concern about the robots taking all of our jobs, AI tearing us all down. Nothing could be further from the truth, and that's all in that book. But in the first book, I said we need safety nets and trampolines, a net to catch those and support those who need it, trampolines to help enable people to bounce back. In the second book, I added one more piece of furniture, a platform. What we really need, both books, the common thread, opportunity equality. We all need to have a minimum base from which to leap from. That's the platform. To give ourselves a chance to raise ourselves up. So three things, safety nets, trampolines, and platforms. And I think society can be off to the races in terms of economic growth, and more importantly, inclusiveness. 
But it seems that it might be just even a bit harder now considering what's been happening with COVID-19 and the pandemic and the uh, environment around us. I agree. I agree. But never before has it been made more plainly obvious that we need it, right? We have what people are talking about, a potential K recovery. People in certain industries and businesses are back to normal, or at least never really dropped that much. People in other business industries are on a steep decline. How they're going This is not good. We are now seeing that we need these platforms to support. We don't need special fiscal benefits. What we need is universal basic income. That's the platform. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pivot just a little bit, because um, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about behavioral biases. Um, and when we spoke a few days ago, you mentioned that you think there is sort of one, what you call progenitor bias, from which all other biases stem. And I think listeners uh, around the world could really uh, sort of stand to benefit from hearing you talk about, well, first of all, what, what is that progenitor bias? And give us some examples of how all paths seem to lead back to this one. Dun, dun, dun. The, the progenitor bias, my opinion, is uncertainty aversion. So if I were to say this bias went poof and disappeared, so you had certainty. Well, if you had certainty, loss aversion wouldn't matter. Overconfidence wouldn't be true. Regret bias wouldn't need to actually infect you. Activity bias, no. If you had certainty, about the future, you would not have any of these decision traps, otherwise known as biases, and life would be that much easier. Life might also be a bit boring though, Lauren. Um, the future being unknown is maybe a good thing. Maybe we shouldn't know too much about our future. That crystal ball can be a little scary sometimes. Yeah, it can, or it can help you plan appropriately and do the right thing. It can help you get to where you want to go, even if you're not going to have the chance to get more and you so know. So do you want yes. to go down this path? <laughs> well, that is probably a good segue for us to go down this path. And I'm just going to tell our listeners that um, 10 months ago, I saw a post that you put on LinkedIn. And it was a photograph of your arm with a tattoo. And on it, oh, so those who are watching the video can actually see it, the tattoo. The photograph yeah. can be shared if your people yes. want to see. And you wrote that you took those words that had been in your head forever and you put them on your body for all to see and they're words to live by. So I don't quite know where to start on this conversation, but you really have been confronting something that uh, many of us have never had to deal with, um, and you draw such positivity. So just help explain to the audience what the journey has been like for you these past uh, 10, 12, I don't know how many months it's been for you. Well, I'll try. Lauren, thank you. Uh, in September of 2019, I was diagnosed with ALS. For those who don't know what ALS is, it is a fatal diagnosis. There is no cure. And life expectancy is three to five years. So based upon when my symptoms showed up, forget about my diagnosis because the doctor is a bit of it does because it's difficult to diagnose ALS. Um, I have between one and a half and three years left. 
in my life based upon average life expectancies for this diagnosis. So, you know, the old saying is you can laugh or you can cry. I think I've chosen to laugh versus cry. Yeah, there's a little crying every now and then. All right. <laughs> the point is, I've had a wonderful life. I have been so... I'm just appreciative. I've got gratitude for everything I've been able to experience and achieve. Number one, I've never had, and it's kind of foolish to adopt now, a bucket list. It's pretty easy to be okay when you don't want, right? My favorite definition of happiness in the world is the Buddhist definition I'm translating, not wanting. Not wanting helps. So, being appreciative of what you've had, not wanting, number two. Number three, I've been able to plan and prepare so that when I am gone, family will be open. That's called peace of mind. With those three things in place, I can embrace happiness, not crying. So if you don't ask me about my son, I won't cry on this take 15. Well, I, I learned my lesson from last time. I, I made sure I had a, a, a tissue close by because uh, this is really personal and very intimate <laughs> conversation. You know, as a society, we seem very uncomfortable um, with death. Uh, death is universal, but uh, we don't seem to want to talk about it. And I know that you work a lot uh, with clients and with uh, firms. And one question I have had that comes to mind is many of us uh, in either our professional lives or our personal lives will encounter someone or may encounter someone who has a terminal prognosis. And we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do. So for those who are listening who may uh, have a client who is in a situation like this or a friend or a loved one, what is your counsel to them? Well, the one of the first things I learned is when I started sharing my diagnosis, nobody knew how to respond to me. Right. Yeah. It is so, wow. Um, I've had clients, when I shared the news because I thought it was important they knew, who started crying. You know, the big powerful people in the investment industry, egocentric started crying, which then triggered me. So don't, let's not go there. All right, listen, Lauren, you speak the absolute truth. We're all going to die someday, right? What it turns out is if you get into the psychology of it, people aren't afraid of death. They're afraid of dying because they envision dying as being painful and uncomfortable and all the negative. So how I would counsel people, how I have counseled people, is when you find out, okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? Let's start there. When you know that you have a time-specific period left, let's prioritize. And if there's something you want to eat, someplace you want to go, some documents you want to care for, let's do that. Let's do what you want to do. I'll talk about the basic responsibilities that would be really helpful for your family, but let's talk about what you want to do and appreciate that you know a little bit more about your future than other people. 
let's do some good with that. So one of the words in the serenity prayer is courage, but you don't like it when people say to you, you're so courageous, you have courage. Why? Because they're putting me on a pedestal I don't deserve. Listen, when you get the diagnosis, if you ever, and I hope you don't, and any of the listeners, right? But how do you know how you're going to behave? How do you know how you're going to react when you do? Don't be so certain that you won't exhibit much of the same that I am. Don't put me on a pedestal because then you're saying that I'm doing something special. No, what I'm doing is what most people, I hope, will do when it's their situation, because I'll tell you what it accomplishes. It helps your family massively. It helps your friends and colleagues massively. If you can motivate people differently, what you can accomplish, I probably have more ability now to live into my purpose than ever before. That's uh, quite a gift. Um, and when we spoke uh, last time, I think I mentioned to you that I always end with uh, what I call the ray of sunshine question. Um, but before I get to the ray of sunshine question, I'm going to ask you a another question because I think uh, in last week's guest, uh, I asked this question. It's just a, a silly, fun question. Um, so first, the silly, fun question, then we'll do this more serious pandemic question. So if you had to pick just one item to take with you on a long-duration space flight, what would it be? Item I take with me. Probably the tile that the words that have been tattooed on my arm came from. I grew up with a little tile in the kitchen with the serenity prayer on it. And that is why the words have been with me my whole life. Never more now. Long space flight? Wow, you better have serenity. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think the tile. Interesting. And so a ray of sunshine question, and earlier you used the word gift, and it's really struck me last time we spoke, you talked about the gifts of COVID. And so the closing question really is for you to share with listeners what you have received. Uh, it seems strange to say that word received during the pandemic, but for you, there really have been, been gifts. So what are those gifts? At the risk of angering or pissing off a whole lot of people, COVID <laughs> for me has been a personal blessing. Why? It put the entire world on Zoom at the same time. No, I don't own Zoom shares. All right. Why? Because that meant COVID extended my ability to do the work I love. I can't travel anymore. I can do this still. How much longer? I don't know. COVID gave my work more opportunity to continue, or I would have gotten shut down. That's huge. COVID put all of our kids at home, right, because their schools are. I've gotten all this extra time with my son. 
gifts COVID has given to me, irreplaceable. Now, let's talk about the gifts that COVID has given to society. The invisible part of our economy, people who deliver things, people who are frontline folks, largely invisible historically, not anymore. Now they're visible. They should be visible. They should have always been visible. Why do they have the lowest wages when they are the required workers? How does that make any sense? So COVID has fast-tracked technology, which is good. We've had the ability to work from home for years, but the people in charge have still had 1950s and 1960s mindsets, right? Work is a thing you do, not a place you go. Let's extend that one more dimension, then I'll shut up. All right, the one more dimension, colleges. How many people end up with lifelong debt, or at least debt for a couple of decades? Colleges are too darn expensive. We have always had the ability to have classes online, and colleges avoided it because it hurt their profit model. Now, because they have no choice, we're starting to learn. If we can get proper accreditation services, college can become more efficient, more affordable for a lot more people. They don't have to come out of an education with a degree that may or may not help them and heavily indebted. So COVID may has COVID's been a spark that has brought forth technology that was at least a few years away, and it's going to make it permanent for the better. So I do want to ask you one more follow-up question on this. Um, I've seen, I think you might have written about this, uh, gratitude and empathy. I think those are two critical elements that, that have helped you, I guess, cope, uh, live with your situation, and I think so many others, no matter what their situation, I mean, COVID has stressed people sometimes beyond what they can take, and yet I think gratitude and empathy can help. Can you just talk, just again, rather briefly about what role those two factors have played uh, in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, thank you. So we get a little more sunshine, maybe. Don't know. Uh, gratitude. And we first, can we respect, can we look in the mirror and honestly see the reflection? None of us have, have arrived where we are today on our own. We have had others who have helped us. We've had other institutions that were available or around for us. We grew up in a certain way in a certain place. You didn't do this alone. And when you can first respect that it's not just you. It's everything that has always been around you that allowed you to get to where you are. But if you have that appreciation, that will expand your gratitude, even if you haven't, even if you don't have that much today. How about gratitude for the people who were there for you, who nudged you along, who helped you along? And even if they weren't so good to you, what did you take away and learn from it? They still helped you. Can you be appreciative of what they taught you, even if it wasn't good in and of itself? Empathy. 
the moment you can respect and try to understand that you know what other people have pain too, maybe you recognize that you're not so different. All have some level of something. When you open yourself up, it doesn't make you solely more human. It will enhance your connections with everybody better. Boy, do we need that now. All of them, not just me. Well, Michael, I am so grateful for you and for your time today. Um, You are a real inspiration, and it has been my privilege um, to talk with you and explore these areas, these intimate, complicated, sometimes challenging areas. So thank you for all you've shared today. Lauren, thank you for allowing me voice for things that matter to all of us, not just me. And for everybody to know, the first book you can get for free from the CFA Institute. The second book, go on Amazon and buy it. All the proceeds are going to go to a local ALS foundation, to a charity. They're not going into my pocket. I want everybody to send my voice. Be my voice for when it disappears. Lauren, thank you. Thank you, Michael. And you take care. You too. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.